further announcement to give everyone today. Uh, something that's pretty big around here that we take part of uh, a part in every year, and that is the Walk for Life, and that is coming soon. And after the service today, when you leave, we'll have some flyers available out in the back, and we'll be passing some around too. Uh, we have learned that flyers passed to people specifically actually get looked at in the bulletin, not so much. So anyway, <laughs> we uh, uh, definitely want you to uh, think about that and uh, pray about being a part of that in uh, early October, and the information will be available when you leave today. Isaiah chapter 34, chapter 35, and uh, welcome to everyone that's here that's visiting today. Pastor Scott here, and glad to have you all here. There was a sports writer in the early 1950s that penned these words in a book of sports poetry, of all things. It's actually the best type of poetry available, sports poetry. Just ponder that. He said this, and this to me doesn't sound like sports poetry. A wise man makes his own decisions. An ignorant man follows public opinion. This was a sports writer. A wise man makes his own decisions. An ignorant man follows public opinion. Today, in chapter 34, chapter 35 of Isaiah, where we are at, Isaiah is leading us today to the point of personal decision. He has been showing us over the last few weeks as we have gone through this together, he's been showing us God and ourselves with a new clarity that we should have. What has Isaiah told us about God? That God is our most loyal ally. He is our most loyal ally in the struggle of life. He, is, he has made promises to us. He has proven himself already. He deserves to be trusted. What has Isaiah told us about ourselves? We barely trust God. God is faithful, but we put up roadblocks to his faithfulness. And we need to make up our minds. We need to make up our minds. Are we going to live by faith in God or by faith in ourselves? Are we going to live in faith with God, in God, or by faith in ourselves? Will we let God save us? Or will we try to save ourselves? You see, God defends us, as Isaiah says, against our ultimate enemy, our own guilt. He rescues us from, from the condemnation by Justifying us on the basis of what Christ did for us and what Christ deserves, not on the basis of what we deserve. God treats us in a way that has nothing to do with what we deserve, right? But do we allow ourselves to enjoy the acceptance that we have before a holy God through Christ? Or are we constantly on the edge wondering how he might punish us next? Martin Luther wrote these words at one point. 
Let it not be tedious to you if we repeat these things at other times that we teach and preach and sing and set forth in writing. For if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose everything. It cannot be beaten into our ears too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, well, still no one takes hold of it perfectly and believes it with all his heart. So frail a thing as our flesh and so disobedient we are to the Spirit. I would venture to guess that most of you, like me, understand that the default setting in our hearts is to really treat God as a shaky ally. And we trot off to other saviors for reassurance. And we don't sit around and think about it that way because we we don't see that category of salvation. But salvation is what we're always looking for. Even in the wrong places. But true salvation is simply God entering into our lives with his grace in Christ to meet all our needs. Amen? And Isaiah has been urging us to treat God as a faithful Savior so that we look like people who've actually been saved from something. And then our faith to others becomes convincing. Isaiah now moves us towards closure here. And in this section of Scripture, Assyria is fading from view, and Isaiah is now addressing the whole world, as we will read here in a moment. The one nation that is mentioned, surprisingly, is Edom. Why would Edom be mentioned in verses 5 and 6 and 9 of chapter 34? Well, because Edom testifies, really typifies the whole world. When, when the infant nation of Israel's journeying, Towards the promised land, they requested passage through Edom. They even offered to pay for the water that they would drink along the way. And why shouldn't Eden be open to Israel? Think about it. They were related. Jacob, Esau, forefathers of the two nations, their brothers. But Edom held a grudge. Held a grudge against Israel, and they refused to let them through. Edom, Edom literally tried to block the salvation that God was bringing into the world. Edom, then, is actually the antithesis to God's pilgrim people. That is why Isaiah singles them out in what we are going to read here. The, the ethos of the Edomite culture is actually the spirit of the whole world that we live in right now. A spirit that finds its salvation in resources that are temporal, in physical order. And you know what? It's the same now as it was then, we have to get past Edom to be saved by God. And Isaiah is saying to us now, I, I want you to listen to what God has to say to this world about this great and this final day of judgment. This final day, the day of the Lord that we've talked about off and on through these amazing chapters in 1 Peter that we read together this morning. I want you to hear what he has to say. And is that what you want to be a part of? Do you want to be a part of everything blowing up and frying? 
or will you set your heart on a salvation from outside of this world? Coming only from God through Christ. So chapter 34 shows us what will become of everyone who buys into this world. Chapter 35 shows us what we will become when we bank on God. and everything that's promised by God in salvation. In these two chapters, Isaiah leads us by the hand all of the way, kind of picture this, all of the way to the brink of eternity. And he shows us the seamless connection between what we embrace now and what we will have then. And he lifts his own eyes, he lifts our eyes, but in his case, he lifts his eyes from his time in the 8th century B.C. to see how things will finally end up forever and ever, as it says in verse 10 of chapter 34. He, he sees this world order being deconstructed, human existence renewed, God's people no longer weakened by sin, all tears wiped away from their eyes. I just did all of chapter 34 and 35. You see, his point is this, the salvation you prefer now, whether earthly or heaven, heavenly, is shaping who you are and what direction you will go forever. The salvation you are preferring now is shaping you now and will shape you forever. You need to understand that heaven or hell will be, in one sense, outside of the eternal existence that is true, that heaven or hell happens now as well in what direction you're traveling. And so that becomes a really important question then for every one of us in this room as we listen to these chapters. What are you becoming? What are you becoming? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. I mean, isn't the New Testament perfectly clear? Who are we to become like? Christ. If you are savoring by faith a salvation, a fullness from God, you're already on your way to what Isaiah calls Zion in chapter 35. But if you're choosing not to live by faith in God, but you are choosing to live by faith in this world, Isaiah 34 shows you your future. And Isaiah 34 really starts getting into some questions. Well, what happens if God does leave you to yourself? What if God doesn't intervene to save you from yourself? And Isaiah 34 writes your final chapter. This is why we did not do a sermon just on Isaiah 34 today. Because it'd be kind of yucky. What if your itching, envy, envious heart, the bitterness that may be eating away inside of you in your life, some of you may be there right now, Anger raging inside of you. 
ungrateful about everything for whom nothing is ever good enough. You may be lurking in the fantasy of twilight of lust. You may be buried alive in a coffin of greed. Maybe you're too sophisticated for childlike faith in God. Oh, that's too simple. What if you're not saved? What if God does not save you? Well, you are becoming now what you will be forever. Unless God saves you, you will eventually find that the grumbling and the blaming and the rest will take over and churn on forever into the gnashing of teeth. I don't don't want to be there. You won't be able to stop it. You won't be able to resist it. As one person said, you will become the photographic negative of what you were meant to be when God created you. You'll just become totally opposite of the life that is in Christ. And we know that God does not rejoice in any of that, right? Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for you will die, O house of Israel. You can be saved through Christ. He wants you to be a part of the Isaiah 35 scenario that we will see here in a second. Salvation is God liberating the soul from the habits of self-focus. Salvation is God clearing away the tangled undergrowth of self-absorption. Salvation is God replacing all the darkness in this world with something new and simple and beautiful, flooding the human soul with a sense of His glory. And how do we obtain this gladness and joy? Christ and Christ alone. Let God save you. Your heavenly joy will begin now. And though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see, it's clear. There is judgment. That's chapter 34. There is salvation. That's chapter 35. And you must choose God's salvation to avoid God's judgment. Daniel, read chapter 34 right now for us. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. 
the sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bull calves and the great bull. Their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom and the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate, for it is his mouth that has given the order, and his spirit will gather them together. He allots their portions. His hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. First thing that we need to make known, it is not abusive to tell people about the judgment of God. God wants everyone to know. One Christian writer once said that if he had one hour, give him one hour to explain the gospel to someone, he would spend the first 50 minutes on the bad news of judgment. And then the last 10 minutes on the good news of salvation. Because without the context of judgment, we don't appreciate or even understand salvation. God wants us to stop, to think. What does it mean to live in a universe where God judges evil? You see, we fear all the wrong things. We fear looking bad in the eyes of people. But what does that matter? The God who will either judge us or save us has these resources that we see in verse 30 in chapter 34 for the Lord has rage against all nations the Lord has a sword it is sated with blood the Lord has a sacrifice the Lord has a day of vengeance the God with whom we have to deal with has these four things this rage the sword the sacrifice this day of vengeance what does that tell us? Well, first of all, on that great and final day, the wrath of God will explode upon the earth like the, the bursting of a dam. Have you ever seen videos of a, of a dam bursting and the sheer power of the destruction of the water rushing at that speed? Mountains dissolving in mudslides of human blood. 
God is patient. Amen? Thank goodness He's patient with human evil, more patient than we would ever be. He's given everyone an opportunity, but His patience will have an end because He is just. More just than we will ever be. More just than we wish He would be. So that's first. Second, the sword descends from heaven. You can't run away from a sword descending from heaven the last time I checked. Third, final sacrifice. All the moral guilt not paid for by the sacrifice of Christ will be paid for by the guilty themselves. That's something we don't talk about a lot, right? We talk about Jesus' takes upon our guilt as Christians. Well, what happens if the guilt's not taken away? What rested on Christ then will rest on you. That judgment. All right, don't sign me up for that. That'd be terrible. I was thinking about it this week, and I wrote it down like this for a reminder for myself. Someone will be sacrificed for my sins. Someone will be sacrificed for my sins. Christ as my substitute or myself. Because God will balance out the scales of justice. He is just. So you have that final day, you have the sword, you have that final sacrifice. Fourth, you have this terrible finality that actually has been scheduled on the calendar somewhere in human history in the future. The Lord has a day, and it's coming. The Lord has a day and it's coming. God will not leave things hanging forever, amen? He will vindicate the faith of everyone who trusts him for the cause of Zion. The social order that we see around us right now that seems so formidable, so hard to penetrate, and it's, it's yuckiness, as I'd like to say, this, the social order that we look around and we go, oh, what in the world is everyone thinking? As a Christian, you sit there and you go, this is awful. The social order that we're creating. And it seems so formidable. It seems like it's something that we cannot penetrate. What does God say it's going to happen to it ultimately? It melts into a volcanic wasteland. And if this is who God is, then what kind of people should we be? We read that earlier this morning. We should be be ones that are holy in conduct and in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And even in all of this this destruction that's going to happen in these final day, Isaiah doesn't let up yet. He does something you don't even expect. And if you look into the smoldering ruins that are in verses 9 and 10, and you think, man, this can't get any worse. What what could possibly be next? There's more because the judgment of God is not merely extinction. It's not merely annihilation. 
The judgment of God not only reduces all of what we see around us and powerful evilness, it doesn't just reduce it to smoking ash. It's a, it's a torment forever. Hell is a real place, and it is not where anyone would want to be. In verses 11 through 15, the, the prophet Isaiah sees the world of human pride just being devolving into this haunt of creepy animals and, and overgrown thorns, un, unfit for human habitation, rat-infested, condemned building, basically. And the most chilling thing about it is the precision with which God will make the world culture we live in now. I mean, verse 11, reread that. That second part there, he will stretch over it, it, the line of desolation, the plumb line of emptiness. So, so Isaiah is thinking of the human social order here, the, the doomed Edom, the, the human kingdom of verse 12 that comes to nothing. What does God intend to do with the social order that is just filled with filth? Isaiah sees God busily at work as a construction worker. Really, it's better to picture it as a deconstruction worker. God puts on the hard hat, bends over the society that man is assembling, that, hey everyone, I'm just going to tell you right now, if what you see around us in the world today and what you see in, in the government structures in our world today and in the change of, of what is right to what is wrong according to the Bible, if you think that is just happening, you are sorely mistaken. It is all planned. There are people planning the way that this is going. It is planned. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me afterwards. I will show you and point you to forums that are happening for years that plan this, that plan the social disorder that we see now. But I don't want to miss the point here because this massive project that is supposedly going to minimize God is going to be reversed. You really picture God go, okay, I am just, just on that day, I always love that language, on that day, I'm going to press the button. Hard hat on, press the button. All of the things that you thought were going to minimize me are going to dissolve in front of me, is what God says. And, the word that Isaiah uses here in that emptiness that he says, he talks about there, the desolation, the emptiness, is the exact same word that is used in the creation accounts, where it says the earth was without form and void. So that gives it, so Isaiah is borrowing from the creation account to saying this is what God is going to do. He's going to zap it. 
all heavens, all earth, everything. And then create me. God will not make peace with human society outside of Christ because it's corrupt. Isaiah looks straight in the eyes to us, reads our minds, and says, don't hold out for God to change his mind. Don't think God might lose his nerve. Don't think God is going to create a plan B. And he says, what? Seek and read from the book of the Lord. There is no plan B. God's plan is already known, and it's shared with us. We know his plan. Not one of these shall be missing, nor shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and the Spirit has gathered them. You can choose to live by faith in God through Christ. But I'm going to tell you right now, you also cannot choose to evade the consequences of not. Do you know who you are? Do we know who God is? No one gets the last word on God. Except who? God. And what we see as people believing that they're trying to create this good life, the secular humanism that is so prevalent in our world today, the good life, actually turns into an eternally barren desert. And, and every once in a while you feel like a storm is coming and, oh, we're going to get some off, awesome rain and it's going to make the, the, the desert seem not as barren and then it doesn't happen like this last week. And you feel empty again. The good life is the barren desert eventually, and that's where God neglect will always take you. But if you put your trust in God, the desert is transformed into a garden. The desert is transformed into the garden. That is what the grace of God will do. Each one of us is moving in one of two directions, either into judgment or into salvation. Let's read about salvation right now in chapter 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Shalom. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. 
in the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Wrath becomes thieves and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, God starts his renewing work of grace in the desert of our real life. And some of you have been in that desert and experienced the change. See, a dreary desert is what we are without him. But God will give lush growth and life and a joyful song to those that are his. See, joy, if we look at this here, joy just kind of seeps all over and comes out of chapter 35 because salvation is not just when we stop being bad. Salvation is when we delight in God's glory and majesty. What, what, what must he be if the mere sight of him transforms us from death into life? It is dumb to hold God at an arm's length. He himself is the desire of our hearts. He wants you to see his glory, both now by faith and in heaven face to face. So how does God show himself now? Through the ministry of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God's glory in the face of Jesus. And we see the face of Jesus as the Holy Spirit makes him real to us through his word. Christ is an overflowing fountain for thirsty sinners. Christ is our, our wealth and our honor and our wisdom and our happiness. Christ's righteousness covers all of our guilt. He is, a, he is all of our power to conquer all of our sins. He is the purity to wash away all of our filth. He is the spring of eternal life. And the believing heart thrives in this new life found in Christ alone. And we need to help each other Seek him. We need to help each other, as we see here in chapter 35, we need to help each other go hard after getting with him to live as confident people because of his promises. Verses 3 and 4, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Encouragement is one of the most important ways God spreads his goodness in our direction. We see it in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he wants to encourage us, encourage us to keep looking for these new blessings that come from God day after day. 
wouldn't it be kind of sad if what we've experienced thus far in life is all that we can expect to experience? Kind of be demoralizing. But God's great goodness is what puts the thrill into life. There, there is more for us in Christ than we can ever comprehend. When you follow Christ, you are never at a dead end. You're always at a threshold of the next thing in Christ. And Isaiah is calling us to create this atmosphere in our life in Christ in expectancy because God is coming to us with fullness of salvation. That's what 5 and 6 is saying. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the, the, the lame man leaping like a deer. I, I look forward to the, to the day that I don't have a two-inch jump. The, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I, I will tell you, I absolutely love our, our time of worship we have together every, every week. Because we purposely pick songs that glorify Him. And they're not just about us kind of touchy-feely feeling good about each other. It's about him and glorifying him and what that means in our life and, and singing that and hearing everyone sing out and, and like the, the new song that we sang today. You know, there's one gospel in, in Jesus Christ. That song is two weeks old. And the first time I heard it, I got on, on all the texts of everyone. I was like, hey, guys, guess what? New song. Because the newness in Christ includes the newness of, of singing a new song to him all the time. And what's funny, it's a new song with the same old words as ever before. But that newness of spirit. Because outside of Christ, what do I and this is outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, what do I have to give to the Lord in my sinful state? I have the opposite of what we see here, right? Outside of Christ, I'm blind, I'm deaf, I'm lameless, and I'm silent. In Christ, I have sight, I have sound, I have agility, and I have a joyful song. God keeps the hard hat on with us. God is the one that's molding us and making us every day. He's in the professional business of changing us from being broken pots into new wonderful creations. And he doesn't just renew you if you trust him. He promises a new environment. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, bursting sand becomes a pool, burning sand becomes a pool, thirsty ground, springs of water. 
as one commentator in the 1700s said, the way of man is to make the inhabited uninhabitable. The way of God is to take the barren and make it abundant. In other words, humans spoil things. God renews. He does it through the Holy Spirit, breaking forth into our hearts, saving, satisfying in fullness to the nature that he created us to be in and be in his presence. I love, I mean, we live in Los Angeles, so the whole highway thing kind of works for us. Isn't it interesting how it talks about that highway? Raised freeway, literally highway, clearly visible. I, I picture, what's, what's the coolest freeway really on the planet? In my opinion, it's, it's the one going up and down the California coast. It's just absolutely incredible. And I kind of picture that, and I go, okay, that pales in comparison to what God's going to create, obviously, although it is his creation, but this thing's going to be amazing. And it's going to be so obvious and so elevated that all that are his will find their way. But the unclean, how br however brilliant a person may be, if they're out of that relationship with Christ, if they do not have Christ in their life, they, they won't find it. Because the way into this highway is a highway of holiness and righteousness. See, God has a better world for the redeemed. the people that he has taken on as my people, right? These are my people. As a believer, you are part of his people. And the Hebrew verb carrying the force of the, the word, the, the, the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighting shall flee away. The, the Hebrew verb in, found in that is this idea of being overtaken by the blessings of God. Isaiah is saying that on one hand, intense joy will overcome us. On the other hand, all our sadness is going to be gone forever. All of our lives, we've wanted to just be kind of happy, right? But all of our lives have something in it that has always spoiled that to some degree. And God is saying, trust me. Trust me enough to follow me and I will bring you home with singing. I will overwhelm you with joy that is unbroken and unbreakable. And your sorrow and sighing and all of that will be gone. And the truth of the matter is, and you know people like this, some people are content with the self-importance and, and pettiness 
and materialism of this present evil age, right? Some people are okay with it. They fill their bellies, they fill their bank accounts, they fill their egos with the salvation of this world. And they will go on forever discovering how empty that is. Chapter 34. And there are others whose hearts yearn for something more. They long for God's salvation. And I will tell you right now, hearing this from someone just recently, when God gets a hold of your heart and as you journey through life with him, you will end up one day saying, all I think about is Jesus. Is that okay? That's right where he wants it. In every situation, Christ is leading the way. And you go, what can, I, what can I do but praise him in everything that I do, in my work, whatever it is? You'll long for God's salvation. And you will receive it through Christ, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus died for you. And the pursuit of joy is incredible. Because it may cost you everything here in this world, but those who really pursue joy in Christ will end up not caring what this world does to them. Because they will gladly leave what the world will do to them in the rearview mirror and press on towards a joy that can never end. So what it comes down to this morning, everyone, is there's two kinds of people. We try to make this so complicated in our own human frailty, but there's just two kinds of people. There's just two destinations. In Christ, not in Christ. That's it. So let's leave this with the questions that Isaiah was asking at that time. Who are you? Which one are you? And what are you becoming? What are you becoming? Let's pray together.